I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Leah Simone Bowen, and this is Podcast Playlist. If you're a fan of history podcasts, there's no shortage of options for you to choose from. Whether you're into ancient civilizations, medieval battles, or 20th century political scandals, there's something for everyone. But sometimes the sheer number of shows can be overwhelming. It can be hard to know which ones are worth your time. But what if you could hear the pitch for the podcast from the person who hosts it? Well, today on Podcast Playlist, we're bringing you Pitch Please. I'm going to sit down with three hosts of History Podcasts to hear about their shows. And plus, we're going to listen to a little bit of each one for good measure. In 1979, there was a revolution on the Caribbean island of Grenada. The new prime minister was a young, charismatic socialist named Maurice Bishop. He was a popular leader, and he introduced a wave of social reforms like free public health care and paid maternity leave. He also developed a close relationship with Fidel Castro, and American President Ronald Reagan wasn't happy about it. Less than five years after he took power, Bishop was executed in a coup, along with seven of his cabinet ministers and supporters. And days later, the U.S. invaded Grenada. And in the chaos that followed, the bodies of Bishop and his supporters disappeared, and their remains have never been found. The Washington Post set out to solve the mystery of the missing bodies in the podcast, The Empty Grave of Comrade Bishop. It's hosted by Martine Powers, who joins me now from Washington, D.C. Martine, welcome to Podcast Playlist. Thank you so much for having me. Let's go back to the beginning. How did you first become interested in this story? So this story really came out because of a uh, family connection that I have. So my mom, she's not from Grenada, but she's from Trinidad, which is the next island down from there. She has a lot of Grenadian friends. I have like Grenadian, quote unquote, aunties and uncles that are my real aunts and uncles. But, you know, you call them auntie and uncle. Um, And then my parents also moved there to retire. And so I just kept hearing about this part of history that I didn't know that much about. I mean, I knew that the U.S. had invaded Grenada. I knew that there was this guy named Maurice Bishop who a lot of people like decades later still would talk about in this like glowing way. But I didn't know a lot of the specifics. Um, and it wasn't until more recently I started asking more questions and hearing what amounted to almost like a ghost story, that there was this mystery around the body of the prime minister that went missing and no one could ever find it and what could have what could have happened to his body and the bodies of the people who were killed with him. And the whole thing was so spooky and also it like kind of speaks to this trauma that a lot of Grenadians who were alive then still have. So you had heard about it, but I'm, I'm wondering how well is this remembered in the U.S.? Yeah, I would say that for people that I talk to, anyone who's under the age of like 50 has no idea that this happened. And certainly there are some history buffs that, you know, would, would prove me wrong here. Um, but I would say that generally like people who don't who weren't alive for it are like 
A, where is Grenada? Or I know vaguely that this is someplace in the Caribbean, but don't really know anything about it. And also the U.S. invaded this country. Like this is on the list of places that that there was a, you know, a U.S. occupation. Um, it's this totally forgotten part of history. And, and what about Grenada? How is it remembered there? So in Grenada, it's really polarizing. There are people who remember Maurice Bishop, who is the prime minister um, at the center of all this. They remember him as like a saint. Um, He was this person who led this revolution. And they talk about how he brought so much pride to Grenada, changed so many things, like was so articulate and would give these speeches about the future of Grenada. Um, But I think the thing that I often compare it to, honestly, is like for anyone who's seen Black Panther, um, Wakanda as an as an idea, just this point of pride for black people like that is what Grenada really was back in the 80s for so many black people in the Caribbean and around the world. And so there are a lot of Grenadians who hold on to that history with a lot of pride um, and then a lot of Grenadians who remember it much more differently, um, who say that this was not a perfect four and a half years under this ruler. Like this was not, you know, that there were problems, there were like dissent was not encouraged. In Grenada, you know, you 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 cover this in the podcast that a lot of people think that the U.S. government was somehow involved in the disappearance of Bishop's body and and his supporters. After all your reporting, how likely do you think that is? I can't say whether it absolutely did or did not happen, but I will just say that the picture is much more complicated than I think um, many people have realized. So up until this point, you know, there have been these accusations from Grenadians that we think the U.S. government did something to hide our prime minister's body because they didn't want a shrine to communism or because they wanted Grenadians to kind of forget about all of their warm feelings toward Maurice Bishop. Um, And up until now, you know, the U.S. State Department has been asked about this, like, basically every five years for the last 40 years. And they consistently say, we had nothing to do with it. We don't know what you're talking about. Like this is, the U.S. has nothing to say on this and cannot be um, more helpful in finding answers. But in the course of our reporting, we found all these pieces of evidence that led back to the U.S. So we know that the area where Maurice Bishop was originally buried, um, at least according to the people who were there in the hours after he was killed, um, that area was bombed by the U.S. military and that uh, members of the U.S. military remember seeing bodies there and at the time even talking about like, oh, maybe this is the body of the prime minister. Um, We also found an eyewitness who said that he saw members of the U.S. military exhuming a body from that same grave, um, placing it on a helicopter that he understood to be going to a U.S. military ship, and that the body that he saw was identifiable, that it was Maurice Bishop, that it was um, some of Maurice Bishop's cabinet members. Um, So I think the idea that the U.S. says, we have nothing to do with this and we have no evidence uh, or, or answers to offer for here. Um, I think a lot of people look at the evidence and they say that can't be true because there's clearly some ways in which this intersects with actions that the U.S. did in those kind of days and weeks after Bishop was killed. A lot of people look at the West Indies as beautiful, you know, vacation destination. Why was it important to tell this story um, and, and maybe give us a different view of these kind of nations? Yeah, I always come across that, especially when you talk about, I think, the kind of lower part of the Caribbean, Grenada and Trinidad and Barbados, um, places that uh, 
I think people think of as, as you said, vacation spots. And there's like the steel drum and everyone's hanging out and it's like the, the vibes are extremely chill. Um, and though there's a part of that. Um, and certainly these countries, um, you know, a lot of their income is based on tourism and creating that experience for tourists. This is also a part of the world that has such a rich, vibrant, revolutionary history with people who are thinking all these big ideas about politics and about what it means to be black and about like their connections with other parts of the world. And so Grenada, you know, was had all these connections to Cuba and also revolutionaries in the in the UK or black people there who were fighting for for their rights and connections to the Soviet Union. Um, and the the picture is a lot more complicated. And so for me, what I found so fascinating about this story is that on this, you know, ob- objectively tiny island, when you compare it to other countries, um, the, this, this island that is basically the size of like greater Atlanta and has at that point just about 100,000 people. But in this small place was this intersection of so many different um, like political ideas and like social ideas and people from around the world were gathering there to learn about what was happening in this revolution. And you can see like the Cold War and espionage all playing out on this really, you know, small landscape um, where everybody knew everybody. Um, And that to me is what makes this such an exciting story is that there's so many big things happening in this small place. It's a fascinating series and uh, it really felt like a, a love letter to the people of Grenada. Oh, thank you for saying that. I really appreciate that. Martine, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. Martine Powers is the host of The Empty Grave of Comrade Bishop from The Washington Post. She also co-hosts their daily news podcast, Post Reports. We reached her in Washington, D.C. We're going to listen to some of the show now. Here's Martine. It wasn't until my parents moved to Grenada that I started to learn more about the history of this country. And as part of that, I learned about this radical young lawyer named Maurice Bishop. In the late 1970s, when he was just 34 years old, Bishop led a revolution in Grenada. He overthrew a dictator, he became the prime minister, and he governed for four years. I learned about how this prime minister was adored by Grenadian people. Some of them knew him as Comrade Bishop. He identified as a socialist, believing that the government had a responsibility to provide education, healthcare, and jobs to all Grenadian citizens. But he was also controversial. Bishop spoke out against American imperialism. He was close to Cuban President Fidel Castro, who gave Grenada weapons and military training. And that put Bishop and Grenada right at the center of tensions between the U.S. and the Soviet Union during the Cold War. Then came the events of October 19th. You're going to want to remember that date because it's going to come up a lot. On October 19th, 1983, Maurice Bishop was killed. He was shot, execution style, by members of his own army. Grenada's Marxist Prime Minister Maurice Bishop had been under house arrest by more hardline Marxist military leaders. Three cabinet members and four of his closest supporters were there too, killed in the same way, right next to the Prime Minister. There, soldiers commanded by Cuban-trained General Hudson Austin shot and killed Bishop and several of his cabinet ministers. Let me just underline here. 
The executions took place in the courtyard of a military fort in the heart of Grenada's capital, in broad daylight. Plenty of witnesses saw it happen. Even more heard it happen. Everybody knew who did it. 17 people were ultimately convicted, some for planning the murders and others for carrying them out. They spent more than two decades in prison. So there's no question of how this group of people died. And that's part of what makes us all so strange. Because shortly after the executions took place, this fact became clear. The remains of Prime Minister Maurice Bishop and his seven allies were missing. And like I said before, 40 years later, their remains still have not been recovered. Their families have never been able to bury them or hold a proper funeral. The people who went to prison for their murders say that they don't know what ultimately happened to the bodies. And here's another thing you need to know. Six days after the executions, the United States launched an invasion of Grenada. I'll explain more about that in just a second, but that's all to say these bodies went missing during what was almost certainly the most chaotic and frightening week in Grenada's history. The bodies of all eight people who were executed are unaccounted for, seven men and one woman. And the question of the whereabouts of these bodies has haunted Grenada to this day. The more I learned about all this, the more questions I had, and I wanted to get some answers. My mom warned me that this wouldn't be easy. By and large, Martha, a lot of people don't talk about it. A lot of people don't talk about all that, you know. She wasn't wrong. There are a lot of people who don't like to discuss this. But even more people do talk about it. They talk about it a lot. So right now, we ask to do a roll call, and we're asking everyone, after each name that is called, to say present. And in the meantime... Last year, around October 19th, 2022, I was in Grenada. I was there to experience for myself this anniversary and how people remembered it. Evelyn Bullin, manager, M.A. Bullin and Sons Limited Insurance. Jacqueline Kreff, Minister for Education. Norris Bain, Minister for Housing. I attended a ceremony that's held every year, commemorating the dead. This was at that old colonial fort where the executions took place. I stood right at the site where these people were killed. As we continue to request for any information, everyone who knows about the bodies of our loved ones, Please come forward. And to me, one of the most revealing parts of that visit happened when I was just at my parents' house. It was Friday night, 8 o'clock. The frogs were coursing outside. My mom was sitting on the couch watching TV with the volume about 30% too loud. She had the local news on. And then this program started. This is a show on the Grenada Broadcasting Network that comes on every week. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to We Culture for another Friday, the 21st day of October 2022. Well, hey, I've got a big surprise for you. I've got a co-host 
I've got my co-host in studio with me tonight. So uh... Every episode has a topic. Sports, music, politics. The host of the program is Godfrey Augustine. There's a panel of guests who join from different places. Viewers call in with their questions and their comments and their complaints. <laughs> we have room for the rest. Yes, indeed. Um, so this program is both charming and chaotic in all the ways you'd expect from public access television. So there are people calling in with bad phone connections, people not knowing how to use Zoom. There's a guy standing outside under a street lamp for some reason. Well, let me say, um, I'm, I'm using the, the street light just so this fella commented about the telephone port. And then they finally get into that evening's topic. Wow, I am very excited about this evening's program. Um, as the topic says, mystery in our history. And the mystery? It says in a graphic on the bottom of the screen. Quote, where are the bodies? I was a child around the time of the revolution, and we, we need some perspective to know as much as possible the facts about everything. Every year we do this program, and it seems like we never get enough. Yes, indeed, indeed, indeed. There's a lot. Um, and, and one of the things that um, we hear about a lot is the issue of closure. And how would we eventually bring closure to this mystery in our history? And, and, and October 19th um, was responsible for creating that mystery. Um, and I'm very what you don't hear in this program is an explanation of what happened on October 19th. They never even specify what bodies they're talking about because they assume everybody already knows. Instead, the conversation is all about answers or what the answers might be. No one knows for sure. So what you hear is a lot of theories. Okay, let's go back to the telephone. We call you. Good evening. Hello, good evening. Yeah, good evening, caller. Yes, it is very strange. People, there are people in Grenada now who know what happened with the bodies. They must know they were part of the revolution. They were there. So why is it so difficult to get the truth from them? Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Kola. Thank you very much indeed. Okay, the All these listeners agree. There must be some conspiracy at work. Someone deliberately disappeared the bodies. But the question is, who and why? From the Washington Post, that was The Empty Grave of Comrade Bishop. It's hosted by Martine Powers. Their team includes Ted Muldoon, Rennie Svirnoski, Sarah Childress, and Renita Jablonski. You can probably relate to this. Someone leaves you an important voicemail or email. You need to follow up and you make a mental note, but you forget to write it down and it slips your mind. It happens to all of us, and usually the consequences aren't that severe. Maybe a project gets delayed or you get an angry phone call from your boss. But it was just that kind of clerical error that led to the collapse of a Kansas City hotel in 1981, killing over 100 people. That's the kind of story you'll hear on the podcast Cautionary Tales from Pushkin Industries. The show tells true stories of small mistakes with big consequences. 
Some are tragic, like the hotel collapse. Some are funny. But there's always a lesson to be learned. Tim Harford is the host of Cautionary Tales. He joins me now from his home in Oxford, England. Tim, welcome to Podcast Playlist. Oh, it's a pleasure to be on the show. Thank you. So you're best known for writing books about economics and your columns in the Financial Times. Why did you want to make a podcast about cautionary tales? Well, I have been fascinated by mishaps, things going wrong for a long time. About 10 years ago, I wrote a book called Adapt, which was all about trial and error and the importance of trial and error. And in the process of writing that book, I got more and more interested in, well, kind of error, the error side of it, like why we make mistakes, why we don't necessarily learn from those mistakes, despite the fact that we euphemistically describe them as uh, learning experiences. And so when uh, Pushkin suggested to me that, you know, maybe I'd like to write a podcast, host a podcast, it was mistakes that really drew my attention. And I loved the idea of of, of cautionary tales, of having these compelling narratives that are so exciting to listen to and draw you in, and at the same time, have a lesson to teach you uh, about the way the world works and about the way that mistakes happen. And and what makes for a good cautionary tale for this show? It is partly variety. We go through all sorts of historical periods. Some are fairly modern. Uh, some are hundreds of years old or you know we've got medieval cautionary tales i think I'm not sure we have a roman cautionary tale yet so there's that, that variety there, there are frauds uh, there are uh, crimes there are military mishaps there are financial bubbles uh, but within the variety you want a really nice strong story some protagonists that listeners can can love or can hate and you also want that slightly nerdy lesson you want to be able to tap into a little bit of research and insight from maybe psychology or maybe from uh, from engineering or maybe from economics something that that you know the the academics have figured out about why these mistakes happen put all those together maybe with some great actors and some brilliant music and you've got a cautionary tale and one of the things that really stands out about this show i think is that these stories are told mostly using voice actors and sound design rather than using interviews or archival tape, which is usually what we hear on podcasts. So why did you decide to do it that way? I actually can't tell you why we decided to do it that way. That's just <laughs> kind of how it came out at first and it seemed right. Uh, it is partly that you can do things that way that you can't do in any other way. So for example, if you want to write about uh, the time some incompetent terrorists took over a plane uh, but then didn't know how to fly the plane. They're trying to hijack it, but they, they, they don't believe that the pilot is telling them he's running out of fuel, uh, which is kind of funny and, and also tragic. You, you know, there's no archive footage of what happened in the cockpit. We, mm. So if you're going to do that, you need actors. We don't have archive footage of Florence Nightingale in her pomp. So we've got Helena Bonham Carter playing Florence Nightingale. And you, you can't have archive footage of uh, medieval French knights charging uphill in a, in a mudslide against English archers. So there's a lot that you can do. Um, but e even when the archive footage is available, I think it just creates a different kind of sound. It doesn't sound quite like any other show in the, in the podiverse. So we're, we're glad I think we made that choice. 
Yeah, and and you mentioned Helena Bonham Carter. I know you've also had like Alan Cummings on the show. So many big name actors. Yeah, Jeffrey Jeffrey Wright playing Martin Luther King. That's it's absolutely incredible. It's spine tingling to hear Jeffrey Wright uh, deliver those great Martin Luther King speeches. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask what that's like having that kind of caliber of actor involved in the show. Well, it's so exciting. I mean, I never in my wildest dreams thought that I would be writing script for Helena Bonham Carter, even though the script itself is is closely based on the historical record. You know, I'm not making much stuff up. Uh, I'm trying to invent as little as possible, but still, yeah, that's a dream come true. And they are they are very interesting in their the variety. So Helena Bonham Carter is very very playful, experimenting with different ways of uh, of being Florence Nightingale or of being uh, Lizzie McGee, the the creator of the game that became Monopoly. Jeffrey Wright, on the other hand, just as brilliant. When my producer wanted him to do a slightly different take or just try a different way of delivering that um, you know that particular Martin Luther King line, Jeffrey Wright, who who has really immersed himself in the role, just said, no, I won't, because that's not how Martin Luther King did it. So, you know, I mean, these are real masters of their craft. Why do you think people should listen to this show? I mean, these are really compelling stories. Um, And that's the most... um, Things going wrong, I think, there's that fascination. The sound design by Pascal Wise, the music is brilliant. The acting is amazing. But on top of all of that, these are stories where we have something to learn from what went wrong. And it, it very often it's something that we could even bring into our everyday life. It's, it's not just some abstract, you know, somebody a long time ago or somebody much more powerful than us or somebody in a very different situation made some mistake and, you know, whatever. They're mistakes that we can identify with. So what one of the very earliest cautionary tales is about an oil tanker crashing onto rocks that were fully visible. And I explain this idea of, of plan continuation bias, which is something we've all done. Where you, you've had some kind of arrangement, you've had some plan, and it gets more and more complicated. And it's very, very difficult to step away and go, you know what? We just shouldn't go out for dinner tonight. It's just not going to work. There are too many obstacles. Just reminding people that the same fault that can crash an oil tanker is the mistake that you know you might have made last week. Yeah, and, and you know, in a moment, we're going to play a clip from the episode "The Deadly Airship Race." Is there anything else you think people need to know about this one before we listen to it? This is the very first episode that I wrote when we were trying, we were playing around with the idea of cautionary tales. And it's just got a little bit of everything. It's got this weird uh, class warfare. It's got uh, the British Empire just as it's on the moment of decline and, and hubris. It's got competition between the public and private sector. It's got these nerdy details about uh, research into toxic competition. This is about two airships that were commissioned, one built by a public public firm, one built by a private firm, and one of them worked perfectly well, one of them didn't. Just that that amazing race, it's got a real sense of, of, of place and space. And yeah, I loved working on it. Tim, thank you so much for joining me today on Podcast Playlist. It's my pleasure. Thank you. 
Tim Harford is the host of Cautionary Tales from Pushkin Industries. We're going to listen to some of it now. In 1930, a British lord held a competition to see who could build a better airship, a private firm, or a government-funded one. Lord Christopher Thompson staked his reputation on the success of the publicly funded ship. The ship was called the R-101, and for its maiden voyage, it was due to fly to India. The design team behind the ship was under enormous pressure to make the trip a success, and that's where we're going to pick up the story. Late in the afternoon of October the 4th, 1930, the crew of R-101 waited impatiently for the arrival of their most prestigious passenger on their voyage to India, Lord Thompson himself. There was a dreadful storm brewing. Ideally, they'd have left two hours earlier, or half a day later to avoid it. But that was unthinkable. Lord Thompson's assistant ought to be publicly shot for putting such impossible tasks to us. That was Noel Atherston complaining to his diary. He left the diary behind on his desk. His final entry? Let's hope for good luck and do our best. He would never write another. The weather didn't worry Lord Thompson. The ship, he insisted, was stormproof. To ride the storm has always been my ambition. And who knows, we may realise it on the way to India. While they waited for Lord Thompson, the ground crew topped up the gas bags. What's the use of pumping gas into a bloody colander? Everyone in the crew knew the bags were in poor shape. George William Hunt was one of the senior officers on the R101. His son, Albert, remembers carrying his father's kit bag as they walked down the road to the airship shed at Cardington. It was a few hours before takeoff. In the shadow of the ship, his father stopped. Then he turned to his son. Now, look, lad, I want you to make me two promises. One is you'll join the Navy, and the other one is you'll promise me that you'll look after your mother and your sister, because I may not be coming back off this flight. The R101's captain understood how marginal his ship's lifting capacity was. He tried to save every ounce. When crew members tried to take cookie jars aboard, they were told to transfer the cookies into paper bags. Each had a spare shirt and underwear, again in a paper parcel. Suitcases would have been far too heavy. It was 5.15 in the afternoon when Lord Thompson's chauffeur drove his lordship's Daimler up to the mooring tower. And the noble lord, still wearing his Homburg hat, unfolded his elongated frame and stood at the foot of the mast to admire his airship. His luggage was loaded into the tower's elevator, including the briefcase, with his notes for the triumphant speech he would deliver on his return. Here we are. His lordship's dress short, two trunks, four suitcases and 24 bottles of champagne. And we'll need four porters to shift this carpet. Hurry along. Ah, yes, the ornamental carpet. It weighed as much as a full-grown man. My precious carpet. We'll have it down for the dinners at Ismailia and Karachi to do the thing in style. At 6.30, with Lord Thompson and his carpet on board, the R101 finally slipped the tower. Immediately, the nose dipped, and the captain released tons of ballast water to get her level again. 
heavily loaded with fuel and carpets and champagne. The ship was pitching and rolling even more than usual. It turned towards France in the teeth of the storm. The crew were exhausted, having been working around the clock to squeeze in short test flights and patch up problems with the engines, the gas bags and the cover. Inside the passenger decks, the esteemed guests, including Lord Thompson and the airship's designers, were being served salad, cold meats and fish. Three hours into the flight, the R101 crossed the English coast and chugged out over the sea towards France. The passengers chatted, smoked and listened to music before making their way to their beds. They didn't realise quite how low over the waves the airship had dropped. It was sagging under the weight of the rain soaking into the cover. The shattered crew kept trying to lift up her nose, get her to show a bit of pride in the face of the storm. All the while, the ship was barely making progress. At two o'clock in the morning, there was a change of watch. The airship was supposed to be flying at 2,000 feet over the town of Beauvais, north of Paris. But the crew could see Beauvais Cathedral up close as they passed. The ship was diving. In the smoking room, some glasses and a soda water siphon slid off the table. Down on the ground, despite the late hour and the rain, a Monsieur Alfred Roubaix was out hoping to bag some rabbits for Sunday lunch. As the titanic ship loomed down out of the low clouds, he gazed in horror. Far bigger than the Cathedral of Beauvais, the R101 was moving slowly forward, her nose down as though she had given up and just wanted to be allowed to rest. Her thin, wet, fragile front cover had almost certainly ripped under the incessant winds, exposing the perforated hydrogen gas bags to the direct force of the storm. The airship briefly pulled out of its dive, a final show of defiance. Then she dipped again. We're down, lads! At 2.08, R101 gently nosedived into a forest near Beauvais, the dark branches tearing into her skin. She was travelling at no more than 15 miles an hour. The passengers would have felt an impact like falling off a bicycle. But no bicycle carries 5 million cubic feet of hydrogen. A single spark darkness of the forest was banished by an instant hellish blaze. Alfred Roubaix was the only witness. I heard the people um, in the wreckage crying for help. I was 100 yards away and the heat it was awful. So I ran as hard as I could away from that place. Just eight men managed to get out. Among the 48 victims of the crash were First Officer Noel Atherston, who'd repeatedly called for the flight to be postponed, the entire design team of the R101, and the boss of them all, Christopher Birdwood Thompson. The competition was over. R101, the serene hope of the future, had lost. 
From Pushkin Industries, that was Cautionary Tales. It's hosted by Tim Harford. Their team includes Ryan Dilley, Marilyn Rust, and Pascal Wise. I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. In 1971, Stanford psychology professor Philip Zimbardo placed a group of 24 student volunteers into a simulated prison. He assigned them roles, prisoner or guard, and they quickly fell into chaos. The Stanford prison experiment centered one major question. Underneath it all, are humans just selfish, immoral monsters? To really understand that question, you'd have to look into generations of people and stories. But if you don't have the time for that, NPR's Throughline will do the job for you. Throughline uses stories from history to give context to events that are happening today. From human nature to politics to television, the show explores the long histories that inform today's headlines. Ramtin Arablouei is co-host, producer, and composer of Throughline, and he joins me today. Ramtin, welcome to Podcast Playlist. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Throughline is going on five years this February. Yes. How has the show evolved since 2019? So since that time, the show has evolved in a couple of ways. One is as we've gotten more confident, as we realized the show wasn't going to get canceled, <laughs> that it had drawn an audience and it had drawn respect, I think, from people in the industry, we started to take more risks. So I think as time has gone on, the show has become uh, more experimental. We've tried things um, and felt safe in trying them because we knew the audience would come along with us. You know, we've done episodes like we did one on the history of uh, um, reality TV, which was almost entirely non-narrated and like very rich in sound. And we even did a, a entire episode that was music that you could fall asleep to that was kind of informed by an episode we did about the history of dreams and the science of sleeping. So we tried all kinds of things. What we've learned to do is to try to make small stories into big stories or make stories of individual people or things that have happened, put those within a bigger context, but essentially try to take off smaller bites when we're telling a story. I think when we first started, we would try to cover, let's say, hundreds of years of history in 48 minutes. And now what we try to do is cover a smaller chunk that tells us a bigger story. So it's one of the ways this show has evolved and also made it so it's more manageable for us to make really richly textured deeply sound design and scored episodes that still uh, make a larger, broader journalistic and editorial point. And your band Drop Electric also scores the show. Is that right? That's right. Yes. And, and so I'm just wondering, what are some of the challenges that come with scoring and composing music and, and creating soundscapes for a show like this? Trying to write music that doesn't interfere with the storytelling that heightens it and supports it, but particularly with hot button issues. An example is we did an uh, episode on Hamas recently, 
And after the October 7th attack, obviously telling the history of this organization, uh, we had to be careful about how we used music because we didn't want to push the audience in one direction or another. It wasn't like a, you know, some of our episodes are really focused on storytelling. So we're essentially telling a cinematic story and it's not about, let's say, a hot button issue that's happening today. And in those cases, I feel more freedom to do what I want with the music to create a kind of emotional cinematic experience for the listener. But in the case of the Hamas episode, doing something that's really present and, um, you know, requires a kind of journalistic rigor with even the use of music. And that can often be challenging because it's really tough to get the balance sometimes, especially when we're kind of pushing ourselves as a show to be more and more adventurous and experimental. So that can be a real kind of editorial intellectual challenge uh, on a regular basis. In a moment, we're going to hear a clip from When Things Fall Apart, your episode with Rutger Bregman about human nature and veneer theory. How did his book, Humankind, inspire this episode? I first came across uh, Rutger Bregman's book because I saw a viral clip of him at Davos. And if listeners know what Davos is, it's a, you know, a conference uh, every year that brings together some of the richest, most quote-unquote most influential people, thinkers, et cetera, to figure out the world's problems, more or less. Um, and, and he went there and he confronted the audience by basically saying, look, we're all here talking about how we can fix the world, et cetera, et cetera, when we're not talking about one major thing, which is taxes. That's it, taxes, 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 all the rest is bullshit. I mean, it feels like I'm at a firefighters conference and no one's allowed to speak about water. I mean, this is not rocket science. Mm -hmm. I mean, we can talk for a very long time about all these stupid <laughs> philanthropy schemes. We can invite Bono once more. I thought it was a brilliant answer. I was intrigued. And so I looked him up and I found his book, Humankind, A Hopeful History. And I love the book so much. It moved me. It pushed me deeply. And, and the reason for that is that, you know, the book presents a alternative look at history. Wor working on Throughline, it's been easy for me to absorb the cultural narrative that I was raised on in the United States, like in the 1990s, which is this kind of alternative, the world is kind of uh, corrupt and dark, and seeing it for what it is, is cool, it's, it's punk rock. And the book pushes back against that to say that viewing the world as a sort of thin veneer uh, under which we're all, you know, basically ready to eat each other if society went away, thinking that way that separation between you and your neighbor and the rest of the people in society doesn't really serve the people as much as it does the people in power. Mm. And that instead, human beings, if you look at it from a historical perspective, an evolutionary perspective, can be quite cooperative. It doesn't mean that we're angels necessarily and that we never do anything wrong, but that our fundamental nature is not competition, it's cooperation. It moved me deeply and the stories in it were powerful. And I knew that I had to find a way to speak to him and to make an episode that explores some of those ideas. Yeah, I mean, without spoiling the entire episode, there is a take at the end that says, you know, optimism is punk rock, which it's so hopeful in a way. Do you see Throughline at its core as a hopeful, optimistic show? I do. And I think a lot of people, when I tell them that, look at me puzzled because a lot of the topics we cover are dark. There's a lot of stories from, from history that uh, are depressing, but that doesn't mean that we're fundamentally that way. I think what our show tries to do is what history as a discipline tries to do, which is tell us that things can be different, that things change, 
that the world is subject to the individual decisions we make and that we're not powerless and that we are part of a broader spectrum and timeline, it doesn't mean that we have the power to do everything. We're not in the business of peddling false optimism, but we do ultimately try to tell stories in such a way that allow people to feel empowered that the world could be different. And we, we choose our stories that way. So, you know, ultimately our Rund and I's wish is that people walk away from listening to the show feeling like they have more agency than they might have felt they had before they listened. The theme of this episode is asking podcasters to pitch their show to listeners. So I do have to ask, why do you think listeners should check out your show? I think the show is just really entertaining. You know, our number one uh, goal with every episode is to uh, engage people and immerse them in a world. Life is hard. Our society is atomized and can feel lonely. Mm -hmm. And what we hope to do with the show is give people an escape, but not an escape into hedonism, an escape into feeling part of something, part of a community of people who listen. I mean, if you listen to our show, between segments, we have the voicemails of people who've called in from all over the world. Hey, this is Bilal Dottery from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and you're listening to Rewind on NPR. And part of why we wanted to do that is that we realized pretty soon into doing the show that there's a community of people li listening around the world. And we expect nothing from that community other, you know, other than listening and engaging and emotionally connecting the way we do with these stories. And uh, we hope that when people listen to this show, they can feel immersed and entertained and, and a part of something, uh, at least just for 48 minutes. Ramteen, thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. That was Ramteen Arablui. He co-hosts the NPR podcast Throughline along with Rund Abdel Fattah. We're going to listen to some of it now. This is their telling of the story behind the Stanford prison experiment. As a psychologist, I have focused my career about understanding how ordinary people or good people uh, be, get seduced to doing bad things, evil things, if you will. The voice you just heard is American psychologist Philip Zimbardo speaking to a Dutch public broadcaster, VPRO, back in 2011. And I have focused on trying to understand the power of situations and systems to dominate individuals. Maybe you've never heard of him, but the study he conducted back in 1971 at Stanford University might ring a bell. These are not prisoners, and this is not a prison. They are college students, and they were part of an astonishing experiment. The Stanford Prison Experiment is the most famous experiment in the history of psychology. And it was done by a young psychologist named Philip Zimbardo. And he had a pretty simple idea. He recruited 24 students and he said to 12 of them, you're going to be the guards. And to the other 12, you're going to be the prisoners. And so he put these prisoners in a fake prison in the basement of Stanford University. Zimbardo and his team wanted to see what happened when people either became guards or prisoners. The prisoners' rights movement had started the decade before, and Zimbardo wanted to show how the U.S. prison system was failing. 
There, they were led to a simulated prison block consisting of three small cells, a narrow hallway, and a closet designed for solitary confinement. This would be their entire world for two weeks. The experiment was filmed by Zimbardo and his research team. And on the first day, it was mostly uneventful. The students playing prisoners were taken and put into their cells. But then, on the second day of the experiment... Things began to unravel. There was a very sharp change in the whole nature of what was happening in that prison. There was a rebellion among the inmates. They refused to eat. They barricaded themselves in their cells. They started ripping off their numbers, started screaming out obscenities at the guards. And that was countered by the guards with fire extinguishers. And after that, the guards, you know, basically did all kinds of terrible things. They tried to break their subordinates. The guards then began to escalate their use of power. Some of them had prisoners clean out toilet bowls with their bare hands to do things which were really degrading and humiliating. And the prisoners did it without complaining, just did it because this is what they had to do. And it was actually one inmate who really, you know, went ballistic. He started screaming, and I'm quoting here, I mean, Jesus Christ, I'm burning up inside. Don't you know? I want to get out. This is all fucked up inside. I can't stand another night. I just can't take it anymore. So that's one of the reasons that the Stanford Prison Experiment became so famous. Because if you just look at the video of it, it's, it's very, very powerful. And you think, what happened to these guys? And... The story, as it's been told for, well, half a century, was that these guards, they initially described themselves as hippies, pacifists, right, who would never hurt a fly. But then in the context of being in that prison and being handed this power over the prisoners, they turned into monsters. So it's a very powerful illustration of veneer theory, right? These boys showed who they really were once they were in that situation. The results of the Stanford prison experiment made it into almost all psychology textbooks. And it's essential takeaway that, given the right context, human beings will be quick to act brutally, was often accepted uncritically. That's basically the story that's been told for decades and decades. It's incredibly famous in the United States, in Europe, in, in Asia. I, I recently visited Japan. Everyone knows about the Stanford prison experiment there as well. But why was the conclusion of the study so easy to believe and accept? Well, according to Rutger, it's because it provides, quote, scientific evidence for what Thomas Hobbes was arguing centuries before. The way I see it is that they were just telling a very old story with basically the same message. People deep down are just rotten. We are rotten to the core. But when Rutger was writing his book, Humankind, A Hopeful History, he wanted to find out whether anyone had actually really looked into the Stanford prison experiment. And that's when he... Stumbled upon this study published in French. It's a study by a, a sociologist called Tibala Texier. Tibala Texier. The title in French is The History of a Lie. It was first published in 2018. This is astounding. He was the first one to go into the archives of the Stanford Prison Experiment to study what really happened. For the most part, Zimbardo's results were accepted. No one had gone into the source materials to investigate it further. There was the archival material that could be looked at. 
Letexier got on a plane and flew to California, went to Stanford, and did just that. And what he found was really, really shocking. Letexier spent hours and hours looking through videos and documents that showed... These students were being pressured all the time to behave as nasty and sadistic as possible. And they weren't all up for it. Some student guards said things like, If it were up to me, I would just, you know, sit here and play cards and make music together with the inmates. <laughs> the guards then began to escalate their use of power. But that's obviously not the result that Philip Zimbardo wanted. Um, so he, together with one of his co-researcher, a man named David Jeffy, they basically pulled a huge amount of tricks to convince these students to start behaving in a really terrible way. David Jaffe, Zimbardo's co-researcher, also played the role of prison warden. In one of the recordings from the Stanford archives, you can hear him pushing one of the guards in the experiment to be tough on the inmates. But we really want to get you active and involved because the guards have to know that every guard is going to be what we call a tough guard. Jaffe tells the participant he has to be a tough guard, to which the participant responds... I'm not well, too tough. You have to kind of try and get it in you. Well, well I, don't, I don't know This experiment was supposed to show that in a prison, guards would naturally begin to act sadistically towards prisoners. But when some of the students playing guards refused to treat prisoners badly, the experimenters appealed to their values. And so they said to the students, like, you're progressive, right? You want this. You also, you know, want the criminal justice system in the U.S. to be reformed quite radically. So come on, play along with this. We need these results. From NPR, that was Through Line. It's hosted by Ramteam Arablui and Run Abdel Fattah. Their team includes Lawrence Wu, Julie Kane, Anya Steinberg, Yolanda Sanguine, Casey Minor, Christina Kim, and Devin Katayama. That's all the time we have. We heard from three great history podcasters today. And if any of the shows have piqued your interest, you can find links and more info on our website at cbc.ca slash podcast playlist. Podcast playlist is Julian Uzielli and Kelsey Cueva. Our intern is Eileen Yamamoto. Technical support from Emily Chiarvesio. Our senior producer is Kate Evans. Our executive producer is Cecil Fernandez. I'm Leah Simone Bowen. Take care. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.